Well, it is great to welcome you here at Stones Hill Community Church this morning. Um, I want to just congratulate you and thank you for the great job you did last week. It was great. We had um, a lot of people here, like over 400 people here, um, some special guests, um, people coming in for the baptisms as well. So you were just great. You welcomed everybody. And um, the baptisms did great. The testimonies were great. Um, Nine people um, just firmly uh, in Christ with an in Christ identity through that baptism experience. And so thank you um, for being a part of that. And um, we just rejoice with you. God has really positioned our church family to do a a lot of good things in our community. And so we just uh, are so glad um, just to partner with you in that effort and that endeavor. And so um, all of the kids look beautiful in their dresses and and little girls, little daughters and granddaughters. Um, All the pictures I saw afterwards, incredible. Um, It didn't go without some challenges, though. My wife was telling me that uh, Mike and Krista Jones' family here with us here this morning, they were telling me that um, they had put their Easter eggs out uh, Saturday night you know, before, you know, the big day, the kids and grandkids get up, you know, the Sunday morning and look for these things, these eggs. And they put their Easter eggs out with candy and things in them. And, and when they got up, um, they realized the raccoons had come in and opened all the eggs. Yes. Isn't that crazy? And um, I've never heard of that happening, but um, you guys survived. And uh, somehow, miraculously, they made it through Easter. So, um, we're not sure, you know, what your snafus might have been and your, your um, hiccups might have been over your Easter weekend, but I'm sure God got you through it and um, you had a great time with your family. So we're really, really glad for you and, and we're thankful for your, your lives. Um, we're going to pick it up in Daniel chapter 6 here this morning. And um, this is a unique chapter. It's finally the time in our series where we actually arrive in the chapter on which the slide itself is based, the lion, the the series title, uh, Living in the Lion's Den, the people of God in exile. Um, The whole uh, theme and motif of this series and even the imagery and everything is based on Daniel chapter 6. Daniel chapter 6 is a phenomenal chapter. And so we're going to be here for probably a couple of Sundays at least, maybe three. And it's got everything in it. It's got um, drama, and there's uh, betrayal and trickery, and there's a major reversal at the end of the story, which that makes it intriguing um, from that standpoint. And we'll probably just read through all 28 verses here this morning, but I want you to read through it maybe even again from week to week for the next two or three weeks because there's so much here regarding leadership um, things surface in this chapter that show you insights into leadership um, that you probably uh, would not be aware of, you know, as you, as you think through this. And so it's going to help you with your leadership. It's gonna, it has intimacy with God in it. Uh, there's even, like I said, lines in and execution in it at the end of the chapter. Uh, and there's Christ is in Daniel chapter 6. And that's incredible. And not only is Christ in Daniel chapter 6, the gospel is in Daniel chapter 6. There's a lot of parallels between what what Daniel experiences and what Jesus experienced. Who else was thrown in a pit, as it were, and a stone rolled over it, and yet miraculously comes out alive? Okay? What happens to Daniel? He's in a pit, stone rolled over it, miraculously comes out alive. You see where I'm going? Okay, so Jesus is in Daniel 6, and Easter is in Daniel 6. I could have easily preached on it last week, decided to simplify with 1 Corinthians 15, but Easter is in Daniel 6. Jesus in the Gospels in Daniel 6, and so I want you to see this. It's a really powerful insight, but we won't look at it today. We'll do it, do it in the next couple of weeks or so. Uh, so everything, uh, so many good things, uh, so many good, great themes that come together in this series, Living in the Lions, Den, the people of God in exile, here in Daniel chapter 6. And so what Daniel does for us is he gives us insights as to how we can live in a post-Christian or post-truth culture. 
Um, and he gives these incredible insights to people who may have a biblical worldview. And you've heard me talk a lot, a lot about that. People who may have a biblical worldview, hopefully have a biblical worldview, but that worldview is uh, systemically being pressed toward and pushed toward the margins of society. Have you ever noticed that everything rows in the same direction? The media rows in the same direction. The apps row in the same direction. Corporations are rowing in the same direction. Have you ever noticed everything's rowing in culture in the same direction? And so when we talk about Daniel 6, we talk about biblical worldview, we have to talk about going against the flow and living a countercultural life. And that's what he does. And he shows us so well how to do that. In fact, if you've been tracking with me in the series, I could succinctly just summarize where we've been just quickly. Of course, we opened this series with Live Your Life. Uh, Daniel 1, stamp your child, draw your line, stand your ground, love your people. Daniel 2, face your crisis, know your prophecy. Daniel 3, trust your Savior, understand your culture. Daniel 4, uh, guard your mind, surrender your pride. Daniel 5, honor your God, honor him and the gifts he's given. Don't make common what God has said is sacred. We had that discussion a couple of weeks ago out of Daniel 5. And finally, we land in Daniel 6. And Daniel 6 is remember your home. Show your loyalty and embrace your leadership. Those are, those are three powerful themes that come out of Daniel chapter 6. And so what I want us to do is um, we'll read through this. And so kind of recalibrate the series here this morning. But I want to primarily focus on verses 10 and 11 as it kind of sets the pace for us in Daniel 6. And here's, um, if I could just somehow summarize the three things I'd like to see accomplished. is, and, and these are it. As we look at this, you'll see it a little more clearly. But just because you're homesick, it doesn't mean your faith is flawed. Sometimes I think we... We think our faith is messed up if, some, if somehow there's a little bit of longing that we feel as a, a Christ follower, as a Jesus-honoring person, right? There's a little bit of longing. There's a little bit of emptiness sometimes. Don't think that your faith is flawed when you experience that. That's a normal part of the spiritual life. Daniel had longing. You'll see this. And uh, he was homesick. Okay, he's probably in his 80s at the time that we come to Daniel chapter 6. So he's been at this a long time, right? He's probably ready to coast a little bit. He's probably ready just to, you know, just to um, wrap things up on, on what's been a very powerful, um, illustrious career for the glory of God. And now they're going to throw the lion's den at him in the, in the latter legacy seasons of life. And think about how resilient he must be to face this. And so, obviously, he was homesick. Um, we'll see that in a second. The second thing is just because God is sovereign, it doesn't mean you cower behind his sovereignty. Well, God is sovereign, we'll just let God take care of it. Well, that doesn't wash with Daniel. If Daniel cowered behind the sovereignty of God and just let God take care of it without my involvement, you wouldn't have the book of Daniel. You wouldn't have the fiery furnace. You wouldn't have this exile in Babylon challenging, going against the, 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 the direction everybody's rowing in the Babylonian culture. We can't cower behind the sovereignty of God. Yes, he's sovereign. Yes, he's doing his work. But we can't hide behind that. We have to engage. So that's where we embrace our leadership. And then the third thing I'd love to see accomplished here this morning is just because a big loyalty test is coming for each of us, just like the lion's den loyalty test came for Daniel. There's a loyalty test coming for you. It's coming for me. And it doesn't mean that we neglect the small things because it's the small things that prepare you for the big things. And so it's important for us to be ready for the big loyalty test. And these guys constructed a loyalty test with Daniel to try to show that he would be disloyal to the king Darius and, and that he was going to um, be disloyal to him because he thought so much of God and he's going to put God first in his life. And that's what Daniel did. 
he put God first. And these guys knew he was going to put God first, but they constructed this loyalty test to kind of to kind of put him in a position where the king would have to potentially execute him in the lion's den. Don't think that you're above Daniel, church. Don't think that you're above Jesus. A loyalty test is coming for you too. It's coming for me. And it's coming for all of us. Why? Because it's the people of God in exile. You're living in a culture that wants to push the biblical worldview to the margins. Okay? There's an alternative value system. And so when you row against that and you come against that and you state things that you're not supposed to state in public places, then there's a way that culture responds to that. And we have to be ready for that. And Daniel, this whole book, prepares us for it. And so I want you to kind of bear those things in mind. And then um, what we'll do is we're going to go ahead and just read through these verses. That way it, it, you'll have a, more, a little more concrete idea of what I'm talking about here this morning. And then, like I said, just for today, um, we're going to look primarily at verse 10 and some of these um, things I've already shared with you. Uh, so um, if you would, look on the screen. Um, just go to uh, slide, slide number 11 and then just kind of track with me uh, as we read, if you would, uh, with the technology here in the PowerPoint. So it pleased Darius to appoint 120 satraps to rule throughout the kingdom with three administrators over them, one of, one of whom was Daniel. The satraps, or we could say governors, um, were made accountable to them so that the king might not suffer loss. And so when you have a new regime or new empire, a new ruler, uh, administration team, King Darius is new, he just conquered Babylon, so he's a new king. He's got three governors. These governors have people underneath them, and they've got to process taxation. There's a lot of fraudulent stuff happening in this kind of arrangement. A lot of people cheating the system, and so Darius needed some reputable people who could lead in these high-level positions. Now, Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. At this, the administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. Credible. I'll talk more about that in days ahead. They, they could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. And finally, these men said, we will never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless it has something to do with the law of his God. Think about that. They knew his heart and the loyalty of his heart, and they also knew there was no dirt in his life. Think about that. They tracked him. Okay, they trailed him. They checked his internet history. They checked his bank accounts. They checked his taxation records. Never had to hide anything. Okay? Man of integrity. Good leadership trait. So these administrators and satraps went as a group to the king and said, May King Darius live forever. The royal administrators and prefects all agreed. Oh, no, they didn't. They didn't ask Daniel. So they got a problem right here. All agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce the decree that anyone who prays to any god or human being during the next 30 days, except to you, your majesty, shall be thrown into the lion's den. Now, your majesty, issue the decree and put it in writing so that it cannot be altered in accordance with the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be repealed. So King Darius put the decree in writing and now when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, we're going to come back here in a second, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened toward Jerusalem. Three times a day he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God just as he had done before. See, the thing is, everything changes in Daniel except for Daniel. Empires come and go. Kings come and go. In fact, if you look at Daniel's life, there's about nine days in the, in the biographical section of Daniel's 1 through 6. Daniel chapter 1 through 6. And so these, these 
years of 80-some years of age guy pushing 90, okay, all these decades were punctuated with these strategic, uh, strategic crises moments in his life. And Daniel did not live his life in a crisis-oriented frame of mind. He knew who he, what, who he was, who his creator was, what his purpose in life was to honor him, and that's what he had as a priority. And it didn't matter what came, who was leading and what empire was ruling. Everything changes in Daniel except for Daniel. He did as he did before, the text says. Verse 11, then these men went as a group, and that's emphasized three different times in our text. They went as a group, because that's what people do when they want to bring a good guy down. They get together and get their story, and then they're going to bring this guy down, Daniel. He's praying, and he's asking God for help. So they went to the king and spoke to him about his royal decree did you not publish a decree that during the next 30 days, anyone who prays to any god or human being except to you, your majesty, would be thrown into the lion's den? The king answered, the decree stands in accordance with the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be repealed. Then they said to the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, he pays no attention to you. He's disrespecting you and your law. See, it's a setup. Your majesty, or to the decree you put in writing, he still prays three times a day. And when the king heard this, he was greatly distressed. He was determined to rescue Daniel, and he made every effort until sundown to save him. What a day. Morning, Daniel prayed. He went to work. He came home. He prayed at noon like he always did, nine, three and, uh, nine noon and three. Um, this is just part of his pattern, his routine. They trailed him. They followed him. They've been doing this for a while. Finally, the day came. He prays. They go and say, hey, we caught him red-handed, all these witnesses. Okay, now the king's got a decision to make. But it's a sundown of disappointment because he can't, he can't come up with a loophole. And finally, this thing shifts to a night of deliverance in just a second. Then the men went as a group to King Darius and said to him, remember your majesty, we cannot change this law. Okay, verse 16. So the king gave the order, and they brought Daniel and threw him into the lion's den. The king said to Daniel, may your God, whom you serve continually, rescue you. A stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the, lion, of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the rings of his, of his nobles so that Daniel's situation might not be changed. Verse 18. Then the king returned to his palace and spent that night without eating and without any entertainment being brought to him, and he could not sleep. There was no food, there was no gestures, there was no concubines, there was no um, wives, there was, nothing could, could bring this man peace because he knew he had been taken, railroaded and ramshotted through this situation. At the first light of dawn, the king got up and he hurried to the lion's den. When he came near the den, he called to Daniel in an anguished voice, Daniel! Servant of the living God, has your God whom you serve continually been able to rescue you from the lions? Pregnant pause. I don't know how long he waited to answer. But from the pit in the lion's den below comes a voice. May the king live forever. My God sent his angel and he shut the mouths of the lions they have not hurt me because I was found innocent in his sight, nor have I ever done anything wrong before you, your majesty. I'm loyal to you. I would never railroad you or undermine you or cheat you out of revenue from one of the other kingdoms, okay? I'm on the up and up. I'm a man of integrity, a man of good, with a good attitude, consistency, humility. I'm a man that has a, a, is going to leave an incredible legacy. You can count on me. This has never been about you. It's about a higher loyalty that I have in my life, right? Daniel answered, may the king live forever. The king was overjoyed, verse 23, and gave orders to lift Daniel out of the den. 
And when Daniel was lifted from the den, no wound was found on him because he had trusted in his God. I take it that the mouths of the lions were open. God closes the mouths of the lions. He, he protects Daniel even from their claws. There's no wounds at all. I like what Spurgeon said. Uh, da- the, the, the lions didn't want Daniel because he was half backbone and half gristle. And he was. They wouldn't have liked him. Half backbone and half gristle. He was a tough guy. He'd been over the mountain and back, okay, through the floods and back of life, all right? They wouldn't have liked him. It was more the lions were in Daniel's den by the time we get to the end of this thing. And at at the king's command, the men who had falsely accused Daniel were brought in and thrown into the lion's den along with their wives and children. I'm thinking, was that in the Bible? It sure is. I'm not going to deal with it this morning, but I'm going to deal with it in the next couple of weeks, okay? And before they reached the floor of the den, the lions overpowered them and crushed all their bones. And thus, the theory that the lions just weren't hungry when Daniel was in there is totally debunked in one simple verse. Then King Darius wrote to all the nations and peoples of every language and all the earth, May you prosper greatly. I issue a decree that in every part of my kingdom people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel. For he is a living God and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. He rescues and he saves. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on the earth. He has rescued Daniel from the power of the lion. So Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus, the Persian, and everybody said, Amen. What an incredible story of God's redemption, God's reversal at the end of this thing. I want us to go back to slide 21, verse 10, here in the text. And I love this because it seems like everything hinges and pivots on this point right here. And that is, and we're talking now about Daniel, and we're talking about just because you're homesick, it doesn't mean your faith is flawed. What, look what we read here. Now, when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, I don't see any inner turmoil in him. Um, he just simply did what he had always done before. God was his number one. And he went home to his upstairs room. Um, this thing sat on the top of these flat roof dwellings. He opened the window, and it was open toward the east. And this is where he would go, and he would have his intimacy with God. He would have his talk with God. And I don't know what it might take to get us all into the place of prayer, but a lion's den has a really good effect that way. What would it take to cause you to pray three times a day? What would it take to cause you stop to pray three times a day? This was Daniel's M.O. It was his pattern. This is what he's been doing for 80, 90 years. He didn't just start this. He'd been doing it all of these years where he's been connecting with God and and, and he had intimacy with God. And, and, And not only that, but where the windows opened toward Jerusalem three times a day, 9, 12, and 3, he got down on his knees. He prayed. Even though he's a busy administrator, he prays. He gives thanks to God, just like he had always done before, the text says. Well, I think it's intriguing that he had his windows open toward Jerusalem. Now, why is that? Why is his window open toward Jerusalem? Because that's home. You know, St. Augustine talks about the two cities. And Daniel here is in Babylon. He's been in Babylon for many decades now. But he remembers his home, and that's where he was taken from as a captive, as a teenager. And it was Jerusalem. And and St. Augustine is a church historian, and he talks about two cities. He says it's Babylon versus Jerusalem. And, And Babylon is the city of man, he says, and Jerusalem is the city of God. Everyone in Babylon is trying to make a name for themselves. In fact, he says Babylon is characterized by pride. It's, we're, we're jockeying for love and, 
recognition and notoriety and we want identity and we don't even know what that is today but we want a unique identity and we work so hard to create it Babylon is all about making a name for yourself it goes clear back to the Genesis account when we read about the Tower of Babel Augustine says that's Babylon and the world is filled with Babylons and 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 he said also that that the that, that Jerusalem is the city of God, and, and it represents a contrast that Jerusalem tells us. What happens in Jerusalem tells us that God in self-sacrificial love has done something great for the world. And that there's a new citizenship in God alone, and we can, we can have true justice, and we can have true joy, and we can have true peace that's found in the city of God. And he says, there's, so there's two cities in the world. There's Babylon and what that represents. And there's Jerusalem and what that represents. And so the question we got this morning is, to what city do you belong? Augustine says that when you come to Christ and you open your life up and you're born again, he says you get dual citizenship. You're not just in Babylon now, trying to make a name for yourself. Filled with pride, uh, uh, Bucking a biblical worldview, doing life on your terms, seeking pleasure just because it's what you want to do, making a name for yourself, wanting that love and recognition and notoriety that the world gives and that's so ready to convey on those who will just subscribe to the, the viewpoints that they have. Augustine says you're not just in that city anymore, you're, in a, you're, you're also in another city, it's a city within the city. It's a new city, and you're, you're a part of the kingdom of God. And Daniel, here's this guy, after all of these years, he's been decades away from his home, and he's homesick. He's opening his window. He's talking to God. He's, he's praying for the restoration of his people. He wants his people to go home. Daniel wants to go home. He's homesick. Those windows are open toward Jerusalem. And he faces it three times a day. And he prays to the Yahweh, the God of heaven, and says, Lord, someday let me get back home. I, I miss home. I miss seeing my mom and my dad who were probably executed. I miss my way of life. I miss the temple. I missed your presence. I want to go home. And when you're in the lion's den, church, remember your home. You got to remember it. This is not home. You're in Babylon. Yes, you're in a Jerusalem, and yes, you have a, you're in a city within a city, and it's called the church, and it's a new body of Christ, a new community, but you're, it, it's okay to be homesick it's okay to feel in fact G.K. Chesterton coined a phrase one time homesick at home what's he mean by that how can you be homesick at home well even when we are where we want to be in life you know you get the job you wanted the spouse you wanted the home you wanted the the the, the location you wanted all right your sports teams are winning everything's good right everything's awesome but have you ever sat down on your couch and wondered, like, hmm, that was great, but I'm still a little empty? You ever felt that? G.K. Chesterton is going to tell you that's not a flaw in your faith. You're, you're, you're not home yet. Of course there's something missing. That's what a biblical worldview teaches us. And so we're always a bit restless we open those windows and we face home and, and and we know life is flawed and it's not the way things are not they're not the way they're supposed to be we're homesick for Eden for 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 the world as God intended it for for lions that that don't eat us and animals maybe that that uh, are are don't feed off of others perhaps even as we think about the uh, Genesis garden and a pre-fall creation um, an untainted relationship with God where we're free to converse and be intimate with God with no hindrances our environment all working together for our good no thorns and thistles to contend with see God lets us groan in this life he lets us groan because he he mixes our life here with a bit of restlessness because we're not home yet you know, somebody said vacations are always too short. 
how many of you go on your vacation, you come back and say, I had to come home to rest, to get, to get rested up because we stay so busy. Well, the vacations are awesome, right? Yeah, and dream homes are great, but they have problems. Health is great, but it can be snatched away by some rogue gene. Community is great, but it's fragile amid close friends. And sometimes we can even feel lonely in a crowd. What's going on? You're not home yet. We yearn for home. And nothing is more often misdiagnosed for homesickness for home than this particular experience and feeling and emotion in our life. See, what we do, we take this this compulsion for home, this tug and pull for home, and we misdiagnose it. We think it's sex that we want, so we go there. We think it's drugs we want, we go there. We think it's alcohol we want, we go there. We think it's maybe a job change, maybe a raise, maybe a doctorate, maybe a spouse, maybe a new car, maybe a cabin in the woods, maybe a condo. And when we get there, we realize, ah, I'm still a little empty. Well, that's Daniel. Daniel was homesick at home, and he opened those windows. And I just want you to know, as we process through this, And we continue, you know, here in the book of Daniel, and as you do life, and as you do life in a post-truth, post-Christian culture, the battle's going to get weary. Uh, uh, There's been a lot of people buried in the last couple of years you never thought would be buried at this stage of life. You get a little weary. We just buried a couple of people in the last couple of weeks right here in our church. You get a little weary because you're not home yet. And you got to remember that. Your faith is not flawed. It's not like you've got to go back and renew things and, and redo things because something's not right. No, 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 you're right where you're supposed to be. You're not home. You know, uh, Henry Morrison, slide number 55, if you would, for me. He was a great missionary, and he served the Lord in Africa for like 40 years. And on the way back to the United States, he began to wonder, you know, will anyone remember us? Him and his wife were returning after many decades of service. Well, unknown to Henry Morrison and his wife, uh, Teddy Roosevelt, the president of the United States at the time, was also on board the same ship. And he was returning. He had gone to Africa and was returning from a hunting trip. And when the ship pulled into New York Harbor, Henry Morrison and his wife looked out, and they saw home and thousands of people and there were, they were cheering, there were bands playing, there were signs and banners and billboards, welcome home, it's great that you're back. And Henry and his wife were so excited about the crowds of people after 40 years on the field. And when it came their time to get off the ship, they realized that everybody had already gone home. They had all come to welcome Teddy Roosevelt. Henry Morrison went to his hotel room with a heavy heart. And as he sat down on the bed, he asked his wife, he said, honey, I just don't get it. After 40 years, we poured our lives into ministry and service in Africa, promoting, you know, a biblical worldview like we're doing here, helping people see life through that beautiful lens. And yet we come home to America and not a single soul comes back to welcome us home. And that just kind of sat there. That comet just kind of sat there in that hotel room. And his wife comes over to him, sits by him there on the bed. And she said, Henry, you have forgotten something. You're not home yet. You're not home yet. After all these years of service, They're going to execute Daniel. After interpreting the dreams, after God did something great for them in Daniel 1, where he refused to contaminate himself with the king's portions, after the fiery furnace of his three friends 
and Jesus pre-incarnate shows up after telling Nebuchadnezzar he's going to lose his sanity in Daniel 4. And being so faithful to represent God in that situation. And those kings were amazed at Daniel's God. After Daniel 5 and Belshazzar, where he boldly, God just shows up with a handwriting on the wall and Daniel just steps, steps in as the master statesman and he lays out so beautifully many, many Tekel parsons. And now they're going to execute him. You ever feel like Daniel? You're not home yet. You're not home yet. This is part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus in a post-truth, post-Christian culture. And so when you get a little discouraged and you sit on the side of that bed and wonder why nobody showed up, you remember, you're not home yet. Daniel, every day, three times a day, he opened those windows toward the west looking from the east back toward Jerusalem and he's in his 80s or 90s close pushing 90 by this time and he's homesick he's homesick and there ends the lesson for us well what else we see in in this passage well we're not home yet and we've got to carry that with us as we live life in a post-truth, post-Christian culture, and Daniel shows us this. But something else we've got to do is that just because God is sovereign, it doesn't mean you cower behind his sovereignty. And I want you to see this because, and I'll just hit it briefly because we've got one other thing we need to, to touch on here before we wrap it up. And that is the sovereignty of God is a strong theme the primary theme in the book of Daniel. And I want you to see this because I think it'll help, just help us rest easy with the sovereignty of God because sometimes when you look at the world and you, and you try to, it seems like it's careening out of control. Like, where is God in this? Are we creating situations that God cannot handle? And the answer, of course, is no. We're based on the book of Daniel. If you go to slide number eight for me, if you would, slide number eight. Okay, just because you're homesick, it doesn't mean your faith is flawed. Just because God is sovereign, secondly, it doesn't mean you cower behind his sovereignty and do nothing. You have to engage. I have to engage. I'm homesick. Yeah, there's a little emptiness. There's a void. There's some things in my life I maybe don't understand why they went the way they went. And maybe I've been hurt and there's been no applause and there's been no progress and there's not been the, 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 the thing that I had pictured happening and, and, and coming together like I wanted. But God's got a job for you to do. And, and, and he wants you to engage. I want you to look at, uh, at verse. We see this clear from the very beginning verses of Daniel chapter 1. It's beautiful because he says in verse, uh, chapter 1 verse 2, Look at how it says, the, the Lord gave, delivered, and caused. Okay, so first of all, he delivered. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. The Lord delivered. Look at verse 9, slide 9. Now God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel. God caused it. And look at verse 17, slide 10. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning, and Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. What's my point? God delivered, he caused, he gave. God is at work. He's at work in the, in the geopolitical events of our world what's happening in Russia and the Ukraine. He's at work. He's at work in, in our national leadership and the puzzle and the question mark that that is. He is at work even in the um, social justice issues of our time. He's surfacing things that need to be talked about. He's working in these 
these uh, complicated discussions and situations. He's at work and he's sovereign in the interpersonal interactions and the individual outcomes. God is at work. And knowing that God is in control should never repress, however, our silence and our passion for what's right and what's wrong and our grief over that in the world. We should always be willing and active agents in God's will to bring about repentance. Not sit back and cower behind God's sovereignty. If Bill Deggie cowered behind God's sovereignty, God's just going to feed people. I'll let God do it. I'm going to stay out of it. It's never going to get people fed. No, no, there's engagement. He is sovereign. He is at work. But when we come at this, and we come at this as Daniel came at it, when we engage our leadership, and we are, when we are active to represent a biblical worldview as costly as that may be, that God uses it to tilt things toward his sovereignty. He tilts things toward his overall plan when we engage and when we lead and when we, we, we remember home and we embrace our leadership and we're loyal to his cause and his mission. You know, uh, Daniel's faith was never secretive. It was always out in the open. Otherwise, there's no impact. He wasn't obnoxious. He flexed where he needed to. But he was bold in his red lines. He contended for the faith by standing on his knees. He contended for the faith by taking a stand on his knees. Slide 53, how do we take a stand on our knees? Sometimes this is like us going into the prayer room. We're just a kitty cat. Life's got us by the tail, and we don't know how we're going to navigate this. On the count of three, I want everybody to say meow in your best cat voice. All right, one, two, three. Meow. That's who we are without God and his sovereignty and without the courage and the fight of Daniel. This is who we are next slide when we come out of the prayer room. I'm not going to ask you to do the roar. Praise God. We come, out of the, we come out of the prayer room. This battle that we're fighting, don't know what our gender is, don't know what marriage is, don't know about social justice issues, dividing everything based on oppression and oppressed making everything a justice issue and dividing our world and ripping it apart, exploiting young people, children. This battle's fought in prayer. It's fought with windows open. Remember our home. We're not home yet. And yes, we're, we have longing. We have personal needs. We got personal issues. But somebody's got to step up and fight for the global rights of children in the world. We can't cower behind the sovereignty of God. And I hear me carefully because that's what I'm sensing as the days are going ahead. I'm looking at a speaker possibly in the fall where we're going to take on the global rights issue of children. You would not believe the loss of global rights of, child, of, of, of a child. It doesn't matter. They don't matter anymore. And even now in Maryland and California, there's legislations on the table that within 28 days of birth, post-birth, 28 days, keep the baby comfortable on the table, kill him if you want to. That's being discussed. Church, you can't cower behind the sovereignty of God. Let God take care of it. You can't do it. You're called to engage your world. You're called to engage the ideas. You're called to engage in the great debate of our time, you have to weigh in. For if you don't say it, who will? You see, we're all kitty cats without, without tapping into this source of strength and power. We need him. We need him. The, the word of God is like a caged lion. You don't have to defend it. You just got to let it loose. And it'll do its own defending. Just let it loose. And so we have to engage. Okay, we can't cower behind and do nothing. There has to be a rising up of the people of God that say, we're homesick, yes, but we believe in the sovereignty of God and we've got to do something. We've got to turn the tide. 
And it starts in our homes, it starts in our church, it starts with being a biblical worldview church. Just because God is sovereign, it doesn't mean you cower behind it. We're having a guy come here in the next few weeks, and one of the primary arguments he's going to make, and I encourage you to get the book and read it, is that those who believe in a pro-life position, those who believe in a pro-choice position believe that others have to die so they can live. And those who believe in a pro-life position believe that we die so others can live. You follow me? That's it in a nutshell. You die so I can have the life I always wanted. You're not interrupting my life. That's the premise of the argument. And the gospel teaches us, people like Daniel teach us, no, 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 you got it backwards. I have it on good authority, the cross of Jesus. Self-sacrificial love. The only tenable position for a Christ follower, the only one, is that we die so others live. There's no other position. As we engage this culture and the cultural rot of our faulty um, logic and uh, of... Um, uh, high-handed, presumptuous rebellion against God in his way. Listen, somebody's got to re- represent it. We have to. There's so much at stake. Children are losing their global rights in massive waves. And it's, it's taking its toll, and it's Im- impacting the next generation. Hurrying on here this morning. Just because you're homesick, it doesn't mean your faith is flawed. Hold steady. Remember your home. Secondly, just because God is sovereign doesn't mean you cower behind it. Engage your leadership. Put the phone down and let's do something. Okay? Third thing, just because a big loyalty test is coming, it doesn't mean you neglect small things. And there's a loyalty test coming to you. And I can't tell you when it's coming and how it's going to come precisely, but it's coming. Just like Daniel's enemies created a loyalty test in hopes of getting rid of him and he's such a great leader but a loyalty test was created such that it could get rid of him and so we're going to face these loyalty tests where people are going to want to know who you're behind who you support what viewpoint you espouse who's your lord and savior who is your sovereign god and we're going to face these. And the crafty administrators asked Darius for permission to conduct a loyalty check. They went legal with it. And now Daniel's going to be sitting in a lion's den for overnight, possibly losing his life. And when you're living in a culture that wants to put you in the lion's den, you can be sure that a loyalty test is coming to you. It's coming to me. And what we do in our small moments, everyday moments, will determine what we do in the big moments. It's those three times a day with those windows open that set us up to face the big loyalty tests that come our way. A loyalty test is going to come to you in the days ahead. Hear me. It's coming to you and for you. It might come to you in the area of your spiritual or religious life. Just like Daniel and his friends in Daniel 3. You know, if you bow down, you get the furnace. Daniel 3. Daniel 6 is, if, if, you, uh, if you, you, you know, you can't do something that God says you can do. It's just the reverse in Daniel 6. Okay. And Daniel actually did what God says he can do and the government said he couldn't do. And there's going to be a a time in your life when the government says you can't do this and you're going to have to do it because it's your calling. And there's going to be another time in your life the government's going to say, no, you've got to bow to this. You don't bow to this, you get the furnace. We're doxing you. We're going to put your address all over the internet. And we're going to let everybody know where you live. We're going to turn the nefarious guys off, uh, uh, loose on you. This is how the world plays. Hear me. This is how it's played. The game is played. You're canceled, right? You're going to be tested in the area of your spiritual and religious life. It might come to you in the form of culture and social networks. Again, they're canceling you and doxing you. It might come to you in the area of your morality and ethics. Slide number 58. People are now having abortion birthday cakes. I kid you not. 
We live in a time where there is no shame. But don't you judge me. There is no shame. But don't judge me. I can do an abortion, abortion cake. Aborted on the cake. We're in trouble. Listen, it might come to you in the area of your entertainment. Slide 57. Boy, I miss the good old days. They've lost $46 million because we said Daniel-like people in the nation have said, no way are you grooming our children. And they are grooming them. They're preparing them for abuse later through the things that are produced. The movies that are produced softens the boundaries. We'll discuss this at younger and younger ages. Things that they should never discuss without the parent, his consent, or a part of that process. You know, this week I was amazed. Slide number 56. I saw this. You know, I'm from West Virginia. You know, that's not a pregnant man. That's a beer gut. (laughs) You're not fooling me. That's no pregnant man. That's beer gut all the way. Three times a day. Talk about three times a day. Three times a day. That guy. Okay. That's a beer gut. And you can get it in four or five different racial uh, skin tone colors. Note to those who are online, my pod listeners, okay? If you're standing up, you might sit down on this one, okay? Everybody's seated here, but you might just sit down if you're at home standing. Men cannot get pregnant. Do I hear an amen? Can't get pregnant. It's not even good science. But it's politically expedient. You go online, you start bashing, you start bashing that stuff or standing against it, let's say, in a well-reasoned argument. Where's the lion's den? Where's the furnace? A loyalty test is coming for you. It's coming for me. Um, It might come to you in your school curriculum or college degree program where a woke professor divides the world up into oppressor or oppressor. And everything in society is about grievance. It's never about the love. It might come to you in the form of economics and social credit scores. I'm going to talk to you about the World Economic Forum. I've been building that sermon for a long time. And I'm going to show you that in a couple, when we get to Daniel 7. And we talk about the beastly kingdoms. It's building. It's growing. The beast is rising. Okay. It might come to you at slide 59. Uh, you go try to check something out, but you, you posted something offensive on social media and the bank is not going to run your car and not let you have access to your funds because you did something socially unacceptable already in China. Already. A loyalty test is coming. And it's coming for you and for me. That's not to alarm you. That's just to let you know, hey, you're going to be homesick. Of course we are. It's to let you know that God is sovereign. We can't cower behind it. We've got to engage. And it just prepares you for the days ahead. Will you be loyal to Jesus? Will you be loyal to Jesus? Will you put him first and love him and defend him? And when I get doxxed and everybody tells you, first of all, don't ever believe anything ever, any people ever tell you about me. Come and talk to me about it. Let me clarify it. We got to hang together. When I get doxxed, when you get doxxed, somebody starts picketing your business, let us know. We'll let everybody know it. So we can all do business with you. You stand for truth. You put Jesus first. You honor him. He was loyal to you. You be loyal to him. You don't have to be obnoxious and mean about it. 
but you put him first. You live for him. He spiked him to a cross. And I think about the Hebrew writer who says, I can't put him to an open shame. I can't crucify him again with my rebellion and my sin and my waywardness. I'm going to wrap with this this morning. In 44 B.C., everybody thought Julius Caesar was way too powerful and dangerous. He had to go. And when Julius Caesar was being assassinated in the Senate, each conspirator had agreed to inflict at least one stab wound on the mighty leader. The assailants tightened their circle around Julius Caesar and their knives and daggers were positioned to stab him. But he fought back and he fought back fiercely. He was a, a warrior. He was strong. He was capable. He could handle himself and defend himself. And so he inflicted a lot of damage, and, and he was a strong guy. And some of those guys, those conspirators and would-be assassins, paid a price for taking on this assassination plan to uh, execute Julius Caesar in the Roman Senate. He kept fighting. Until the moment he turned and he saw his good friend, Brutus. And the pain of that recognition brought everything to a halt. He was doing a good job of defending himself. But he saw his good friend. There was an eerie moment of silence. Caesar spoke those famous words, et tu, Brute. Maybe you studied those in high school classes. Maybe you read Shakespeare. Et tu, Brute. Latin, and you, Brutus? You too? No, not you. What he thought was a loyal friend in the end, st standing with his dagger before him. The urge to fight left him. Julius Caesar, he stopped fighting. He covered himself with his cloak and he laid down and he let his conspirators stab him at will. including Marcus Brutus. Here's how I'm wrapping. I know you've been betrayed. Maybe a spouse. Maybe an employer. Maybe a, a co-worker. I know you have. And you're not home yet. I know you've been betrayed. But what I'm asking you to do is move past the betrayal and enter the fight. Move, move past the hurt and say, I've got a mission. I got a vision. I've got something to, something to contend for. And I can't do this in a kitty cat frame of mind. Father, we need you. Is that how you feel this morning? Will you pray with me? Father, thank you so much for Daniel 6. Thank you so much for your word and the power of it. Thank you so much for the truth of it. And we're just going to enjoy Daniel 6 for the next couple of weeks. We're just going to dive deep into this. You've got some other things to say to us in this chapter. And I know it must have been daggers through Daniel to see all of his co-workers turn on him like they did. After all those years, this fine statesman, octogenarian, just this guy that's just lived decades for you. And they're going to send him out in the lion's den. Oh, the hurt of that. The sting of that. But Father...
we're opening up our window this morning. And we open it toward the west. Our case is the east. We open it. We, want, we know we're in the Babylon of the world, but we want to be in the city of God. We want to live your values. We want to understand oh, we're not home yet, that you're calling us forward. And yeah, that life can get weary at times, but we know we're headed home and we're going to trust you to restore our people. God, we're going to trust your sovereignty and we will not cower behind it. We will engage. And Father, when that time of loyalty comes to us and that test, will you help us to understand it's the small ways that we say yes to you. We do not want to abandon you, your name, your cause, your values, and your message. We will stand for this. We will fight for this. We will not cloak up and let the daggers plunge in. No. We will contend even despite the betrayals. We will contend for truth for as long as you give us the ability to do so. And if there's somebody here this morning that's misdiagnosed, they're longing for home, and they've gone to all these other things to try to uh, feel that longing, you're waiting for them here today. You slip inside. And you give them true peace, true life purpose. And you set them on a path that leads them to uh, blessing and flourishing. And we ask all these things in your name. Amen. Will you stand with me this morning? You have been so kind to stay with me. Thank you so much. Say some hello to somebody before you get out of here. Okay, people love our friendly church. Be sure to do that. Keep it friendly. We'll see you next week. God bless.